Chapter 7 The lack of sustained interest which the big male wolf had displayed toward me was encouraging enough to tempt me to visit the den again the next morning. But this time, instead of the shotgun and the hatchet, I still retained the rifle, pistol, and hunting knife, I carried a high-powered periscopic telescope <clears throat> and a tripod on which to mount it. It was a fine, sunny morning, with enough breeze to keep the mosquito vanguard down. When I reached the bay where the esker was, I chose a prominent knoll of rock for some 400 yards from the den, behind which I could set up my telescope so that its objective lenses peered over the crest, but left me in hiding. Using consummate fieldcraft, I approached the chosen observation point in such a manner that the wolves could not possibly have seen me, and since the wind was from them to me, I was assured that they would have had no suspicion of my arrival. When all was in order, I focused the telescope. But to my chagrin, I could see no wolves. The magnification of the instrument was such that I could almost distinguish the individual grains of sand in the esker. Yet, though I searched every inch of it for a distance of a mile on each side of the den, I could find no indication that wolves were about, or had ever been about. By noon I had a bad case of eye strain, and a worse one of cramps, and I had almost concluded that my hypothesis of the previous day was grievously at fault, and that the den was just a fortuitous hole in the sand. This was discouraging, for it had begun to dawn on me that all of the intricate study plans and schedules which I had drawn up were not going to be of much use without a great deal of cooperation on the part of the wolves. In country as open and as vast as this one was, the prospects of getting within visual range of a wolf, except by the luckiest of accidents, and I had already had more than my ration of these, were negligible. I realized that if this was not a wolf's den, which I had found, I had about as much chance of locating the actual den in this faceless wilderness as I had of finding a diamond mine. Glumly, I went back to my unproductive survey through the telescope. The esker remained deserted. The hot sand began sending up heat waves, which increased my eye strain. By 2 p.m., I had given up hope. There seemed no further point in concealment, so I got stiffly to my feet and prepared to relieve myself. Now it is a remarkable fact that a man, even though he may be alone in a small boat in mid-ocean or isolated in the midst of the trackless forest, finds that the very process of unbuttoning causes him to become peculiar, peculiarly sensitive to the possibility that he may be under observation. At this critical juncture, none but the most self-assured of men, no matter how certain he may be of his privacy, can refrain from casting a surreptitious glance around to reassure himself that he really is alone. To say I was chagrined to discover I was not alone would be an understatement, for sitting directly behind me, not twenty yards away, were the missing wolves. They appeared to be quite relaxed and comfortable, as if they had been sitting there behind my back for hours. The big male seemed a trifle bored, 
but the female's gaze was fixed on me with what I took to be an expression of unabashed and even purient, prurient curiosity. The human psyche is truly an amazing thing. Under almost any other circumstances, I would probably have been panic-stricken, and I think few would have blamed me for it. But these were not ordinary circumstances, and my reaction was one of violent indignation. Outraged, I turned my back on the watching wolves, and with fingers which were shaking with vexation, hurriedly did up my buttons. With decency, if not my dignity, when decency, if not my dignity, had been restored, I rounded on those wolves with a violence which surprised even me. Shoo! I screamed at them. What the hell do you think you're at? You, you peeping toms? Go away for heaven's sake! The wolves were startled. They sprang to their feet glanced at each other with a wild surmise, and then trotted off, passed down a draw, and disappeared in the direction of the esker. They did not once look back. With their departure, I experienced a reaction of another kind. The realization that they had been sitting almost within jumping distance of my unprotected back for God knows how long set up such a turmoil of the spirit that I had to give up all thought of carrying on where my discovery of the wolves had forced me to leave off. Suffering from both mental and physical strain, therefore, I hurriedly packed my gear and set out for the cabin. My thoughts that evening were confused. True, my prayer had been answered, and the wolves had certainly cooperated by reappearing. But on the other hand, I was becoming prey to a small but nagging doubt as to just who was a watching whom. I felt that I, because of my specific superiority as a member of Homo sapiens, together with my intensive technical training, was entitled to pride of place. The sneaking suspicion that this pride had been denied, and that, in point of fact, I was the one who was under observation, had an unsettling effect upon my ego. In order to establish my ascendancy once and for all, I determined to visit the wolf esker itself the following morning and make a detailed examination of the presumed den. I decided to go by canoe, since the rivers were now clear and the rafting lake ice was being driven offshore by a stiff northerly breeze. It was a fine leisurely trip to Wolf House Bay, as I had now named it. The annual spring caribou migration north from the forested areas of Manitoba toward the distant tundra plains near Dubont Lake was underway, and from my canoe I could see countless skeins of caribou crisscrossing the muskegs and the rolling hills in all directions. No wolves were in evidence as I neared the esker, and I assumed they were away hunting a caribou for lunch. I ran the canoe ashore and, fearfully laden with cameras, guns, binoculars, and other gear, laboriously climbed the shifting sands of the esker to the shadowy place where the female wolf had appeared. <clears throat> en route, I found 
unmistakable proof that this esker was, if not the home, at least one of the favorite promenades of the wolves. It was liberally strewn with scats and covered with wolf tracks, which in many places formed well-defined paths. The den was located in a small wadi in the esker, and was so well concealed that I was on the point of walking past without seeing it, when a series of small squeaks attracted my attention. I stopped and turned to look, and there, not fifteen feet below me, were four small gray beasties engaged in a free-for-all wrestling match. At first I did not recognize them for what they were, the fat fox faces with pinprick ears, the butterball bodies as round as pumpkins, the short bowed legs and the tiny upthrust sprigs of tails were so far from my conception of a wolf that my brain refused to make the logical connection. Suddenly one of the pups caught my scent. He stopped in the midst of attempting to bite off a brother's tail and turned smoky blue eyes up toward me. What he saw evidently intrigued him. Lurching free from the scrimmage, he padded toward me with a rolling, wobbly gait but a flea bit him unexpectedly before he had gone far, and he had to sit down to scratch it. At this instant, an adult wolf let loose a full-throated howl, vibrant with alarm and warning, not more than fifty yards from me. The idyllic scene exploded into frenzied action. The pups became gray streaks which vanished into the gaping darkness of the den mouth. I spun around to face the adult wolf, lost my footing, and started to skid down the loose slope toward the den. In trying to regain my balance, I thrust the muzzle of the rifle deep into the sand, where it stuck fast, until the carrying strap dragged it free as I slid rapidly away from it. I fumbled wildly at my revolver, but so cluttered was I with cameras and equipment straps that I did not succeed in getting the weapon clear as... Accompanied by a growing avalanche of sand, I shot past the den mouth, over the lip of the main ridge, and down the full length of the esker slope. Miraculously, I kept my feet, but only by dint of superhuman contortions during which I was alternately bent forward like a skier, going over a jump, or leaning backward at such an acute angle, I thought my backbone was going to snap. <clears throat> it must have been quite a show. When I got myself straightened out and glanced back up the esker, it was to see three adult wolves ranged side by side like spectators in the royal box, all peering down at me with expressions of incredulous delight. I lost my temper. This is something a scientist seldom does, but I lost mine. My dignity had been too heavily eroded during the past several days, and my scientific detachment was no longer equal to the strain. With a snarl of exasperation, I raised the rifle. But, fortunately, the thing was so clogged with sand that when I pressed the trigger, nothing happened. The wolves did not appear alarmed until they saw me begin to dance up and down in helpless fury, waving the useless rifle and hurling imprecations at their, at their cocked ears whereupon they exchanged quizzical looks and silently withdrew out of my sight. I, too, withdrew, 
for I was in no fit mental state to carry on with my exacting scientific duties. To tell the truth, I was in no fit mental state to do anything except hurry home to Mike's and seek solace for my tattered nerves and frayed vanity in the bottom of a jar of wolf juice. I had a long and salutary session with the stuff that night, and as my spiritual bruises became less painful under its healing influence, I reviewed the incidents of the past few days. Inescapably, the realization was being borne in upon my preconditioned mind, mind that the centuries-old and universally accepted human concept of wolf character was a palpable lie. On three separate occasions in less than a week, I had been completely at the mercy of these savage killers, but far from attempting to tear me limb from limb, they had displayed a restraint verging on contempt, even when I invaded their home and appeared to be posing a direct threat to the young pups. This much was obvious, yet I was still strangely reluctant to let the myth go down the drain. Part of this reluctance was no doubt due to the thought that, by discarding the accepted concepts of wolf nature, I would be committing scientific treason. Part of it to the knowledge that recognition of the truth would deprive my mission of its fine aura of danger and high adventure, and not the least part of that reluctance was probably due to my unwillingness to accept the fact that I had been made to look like a blithering idiot, not by my fellow man, but by mere brute beasts. Nevertheless, I persevered. When I emerged from my session with the wolf juice the following morning, I was somewhat the worse for wear in a physical sense, but I was cleansed and purified spiritually. I had wrestled with my devils, and I had won. I had made my decision that, from this hour onward, I would go open-minded into the lupine world and learn to see and know the wolves, not for what they were supposed to be, but for what they actually were. Chapter 8 during the next several weeks, I put my decision into effect with the thoroughness for which I have always been noted. I went completely to the wolves. To begin with, I set up a den of my own as near to the wolves as I could conveniently get without disturbing the even tenor of their lives too much. After all, I was a stranger, and an unwolf-like one, so I did not feel I should go too far too fast. Abandoning Mike's cabin, with considerable relief, since as the days warmed up, so did the smell, I took a tiny tent and set it up on the shore of the bay immediately opposite to the den esker. I kept my camping gear to the barest minimum. A small primus stove, a, new, a stew pot, a tea kettle, and a sleeping bag were the essentials. I took no weapons of any kind, although there were times when I regretted this omission, even if only fleetingly. The big telescope was set up in the mouth of the tent in such a way that I could observe the den by day or night without even getting out of my sleeping bag. During the first few days of my sojourn with the wolves, I stayed inside the tent except for brief and necessary visits to the out-of-doors which I always undertook when the wolves were not in sight. The point of this personal concealment was to allow the animals to get used to the tent and to accept it as only another bump 
on a very bumpy piece of terrain. Later, when the mosquito population reached full flowering, I stayed in the tent practically all of the time, unless there was a strong wind blowing, for the most bloodthirsty beasts in the Arctic are not wolves, but the insatiable mosquitoes. My precautions against disturbing the wolves were superfluous. It had required a week for me to get their measure, but they must have taken mine at our first meeting. And while there was nothing overtly disdainful in their evident assessment, assessment of me, they managed to ignore my presence, and indeed my very existence, with a thoroughness which was somehow disconcerting. Quite by accident, I had pitched my tent within ten yards of one of the major paths used by the wolves when they were going to or coming from their hunting grounds to the westward. And only a few hours after I had taken up residence, one of the wolves came back from a trip and discovered me in my tent. He was at the end of a hard night's work and was clearly tired and anxious to go home to bed. He came over a small rise fifty yards from me with his head down, his eyes half closed, and a preoccupied air about him. Far from being the preternaturally alert and suspicious beast of fiction, this wolf was so self-engrossed that he came straight on to within fifteen yards of me, and might have gone right past the tent without seeing it at all, had I not banged my elbow against the tea kettle, making a resounding clank. The wolf's head came up and his eyes opened wide, but he did not stop or falter in his pace. One brief, sidelong glance was all he vouchsafed to me as he continued on his way. It was true that I wanted to be inconspicuous, but I felt uncomfortable at being so totally ignored. Nevertheless, during the two weeks which followed, one or more wolves used the track past my tent almost every night, and never, except on one memorable occasion, did they evince the slightest interest in me. By, this, by the time this happened, I had learned a good deal about my wolfish neighbors, and one of the facts which had emerged was that they were not nomadic roamers, as is almost universally believed, but were settled beasts and the possessors of a large permanent estate with very definite boundaries. The territory owned by my wolf family comprised more than a hundred square miles, bounded on one side by a river, but otherwise not delimited by geographical features. Nevertheless, there were boundaries clearly indicated in wolfish fashion. Anyone who has observed a dog doing his neighborhood rounds and leaving his personal mark on each convenient post will have already guessed how the wolves marked out their property. Once a week, more or less, the clan made the rounds of the family lands and freshened up the boundary markers, a sort of lupine beating of the bounds. This careful attention to property rights was perhaps made necessary by the presence of two other wolf families whose lands abutted on ours, although I never discovered any evidence of bickering or disagreements between the owners of the various adjoining estates. I suspect, therefore, that it was more of a ritual activity. In any event, once I had become aware of the strong feeling of property rights which existed amongst the wolves, I decided to use this knowledge to make them at least recognize my existence. One evening, after they had gone off for their regular nightly hunt, I staked out a property claim of my own, 
embracing perhaps three acres, with the tent at the middle, and including a hundred-yard-long section of the wolves' path. Staking the land turned out to be rather more difficult than I had anticipated. In order to ensure that my claim would not be overlooked, I felt obliged to make a property mark on stones, clumps of moss, and patches of vegetation at intervals of not more than fifteen feet around the circumference of my claim. This took most of the night and required frequent returns to the tent to consume copious quantities of tea, but before dawn brought the hunters home, the task was done, and I retired, somewhat exhausted, to observe results. I had not long to wait. At 0814 hours, according to my wolf log, the leading male of the clan appeared over the ridge behind me, paddling padding homeward with his usual air of preoccupation. As usual, he did not deign to glance at the tent, but when he reached the point where my property line intersected the trail, he stopped as abruptly as if he had run into an invisible wall. He was only fifty yards from me, and with my binoculars I could see his expression very clearly. His attitude of fatigue vanished and was replaced by a look of bewilderment. Cautiously, he extended his nose and sniffed at one of my marked bushes. He did not seem to know what to make of it, or what to do about it. After a minute of complete indecision, he backed away a few yards and sat down. And then, finally, he looked directly at the tent and at me. It was a long, thoughtful, considering sort of look. Having achieved my object, that of forcing at least one of the wolves to take cognizance of my existence, I now began to wonder if, in my ignorance, I had transgressed some unknown wolf law of major importance and would have to pay for my temerity. I found myself regretting the absence of a weapon as the look I was getting became longer, yet more thoughtful, and still more intent. I began to grow decidedly fidgety, for I disliked staring matches. And in this particular case, I was up against a master, whose yellow glare seemed to become more baleful as I attempted to stare him down. The situation was becoming intolerable. In an effort to break the impasse, I loudly cleared my throat and turned my back on the wolf for a tenth of a second, to indicate as clearly as possible that I found his continued scrutiny impolite, if not actually offensive. He appeared to take the hint. Getting to his feet, he had another sniff at my marker, and then he seemed to make up his mind. Briskly, and with an air of decision, he turned his attention away from me and began a systematic tour of the area I had staked out as my own. As he came to each boundary marker, he sniffed it once or twice and carefully placed his mark on the outside of each clump of grass or stone. As I watched, I saw where I, in my ignorance, had erred. He made his mark with such economy that he was able to complete the entire circuit without having to reload once, or to change the simile slightly. He did it all on one tank of fuel. The task completed, and it had taken him no longer than fifteen minutes, he rejoined the path at the point where it left my property and trotted off towards his home, leaving me with a good deal to occupy my thoughts. Chapter 9 once it had been formally established, and its existence ratified by the wolves themselves, my little enclave in their territory remained inviolate. 
Never again did a wolf trespass on my, my domain. Occasionally, one in passing would stop to freshen up some of the boundary marks on his side of the line, and, not to be outdone in ceremony, I followed suit to the best of my ability. Any lingering doubts I might have had as to my personal safety dissolved, and I was free to devote all my attention to the study of the beasts themselves. Very early in my observations, I discovered that they led a well-regulated life, although they were not slavish adherents to fixed schedules. Early in the evenings, the males went off to work. <clears throat> they might depart at four o'clock, or they might delay until six or seven, but sooner or later off they went on the nightly hunt. During this hunt, they ranged far afield, although always, as far as I could tell, staying within the limits of the family territory. I estimated that during a normal hunt, they covered 30 or 40 miles before dawn. When times were hard, they probably covered even greater distances, <clears throat> since on some occasions they did not get home until the afternoon. During the balance of the daylight hours, they slept, but in their own peculiarly wolfish way, which consisted of curling up for short wolf naps of from t five to ten minutes duration, after each of which they would take a quick look about and then turn round once or twice before dozing off again. The females and the pups led a more diurnal life. Once the males had departed in the evening, the female usually went into the den and stayed there, emerging only occasionally for a breath of air, a drink, or sometimes for a visit to the meat cache for a snack. This cache deserves special mention. No food was ever stored or left close to the den and only enough was brought in at one time for immediate consumption. Any surplus from a hunt was carried to the cache, which was located in a jumble of boulders half a mile from the den, and stuffed into crevices primarily for the use of the nursing female who, of course, could not join the male wolves on extended hunting trips. The cache was also used surreptitiously by a pair of foxes who had their own den close by. The wolves must have known of the location of the fox's home and probably knew perfectly well that there was a certain amount of pilfering from their cache, but they did nothing about it even though it would have been a simple matter for them to dig out and destroy the litter of fox pups. The foxes on their side seemed to have no fear of the wolves, and several times I saw one flit like a shadow across the esker within a few yards of a wolf without eliciting any response. Later I concluded that almost all the dens used by the barren land wolves were abandoned fox burrows, which had been taken over and enlarged by the wolves. It is possible that the usefulness of the foxes as preliminary excavators may have guaranteed them immunity, but it seems more likely that the wolves' tolerance simply reflected their general amiability. During the day, while the male wolves took it easy, the female would be reasonably active about her household chores. Emerging boisterously from the close confines of the den, the pups also became active, to the point of total exhaustion. Thus, throughout the entire 24-hour period, there was usually something going on, or at least the expectation of something, to keep me glued to the telescope. After the first two days and nights of nearly continuous observing, I had about reached the limits of my endurance. It was a most frustrating situation, 
I did not dare go to sleep for fear of missing something vital. On the other hand, I became so sleepy that I was seeing double, if not triple, on occasion. Although this effect may have been associated with the quantities of wolf juice which I consumed in an effort to stay awake. I saw that something drastic would have to be done or my whole study program would founder. I could think of nothing adequate until, watching one of the males dozing comfortably on a hillock near the den, I recognized the solution to my problem. It was simple. I had only to learn to nap like a wolf. It took some time to get the knack of it. I experimented by closing my eyes and trying to wake up again five minutes later, but it didn't work. After the first two or three naps, I failed to wake up at all until several hours had passed. The fault was mine, for I had failed to imitate all the actions of a dozing wolf, and, as I eventually discovered, the business of curling up to start with and spinning about after each nap was vital to success. I don't know why this is so. Perhaps changing the position of the body helps to keep the circulation stimulated. I do know, however, that a series of properly conducted wolf naps is infinitely more refreshing than the unconscious coma of seven or eight hours' duration, which represents the human answer to the need for rest. Unfortunately, the wolf nap does not readily lend itself to adaptation into our society, as I discovered after my return to civilization, when a young lady of whom I was enamored at the time parted company with me. She had rather, she told me vehemently, spend her life with a grasshopper who had rickets than spend one more night in bed with me. As I grew more completely attuned to their daily round of family life, I found it increasingly difficult to maintain an impersonal attitude toward the wolves. No matter how hard I tried to regard them with scientific objectivity, I could not resist the impact of their individual personalities. Because he reminded me irresistibly of a royal gentleman for whom I worked as a simple soldier during the war, I found myself calling the father of the family George, even though in my notebooks he was austerely identified only as Wolf A. George was a massive and eminently regal beast whose coat was silver white. He was about a third larger than his mate, but he hardly needed this extra bulk to emphasize his air of masterful certainty. George had presence. His dignity was unassailable, yet he was by no means aloof, conscientious to a fault, thoughtful of others, and affectionate within reasonable bounds. He was the kind of father who, whose family, no, he was the kind of father whose idealized image appears in many wistful books of human family reminiscences but whose real prototype has seldom paced the earth upon two legs. George was, in brief, the kind of father every son longs to acknowledge as his own. His wife was equally memorable, a slim, almost pure white wolf with a thick ruff around her face and wide-spaced, slightly slanted eyes. She seemed the picture of a minx, beautiful, ebullient, passionate to a degree, and devilish when the mood was on her. She hardly looked like the epitome of motherhood, yet there could have been no better mother anywhere. I found myself calling her Angeline, 
although I have never been able to trace the origin of that name in the murky depths of my own subconscious. I respected and liked George very much, but I became deeply fond of Angeline, and still live in hopes that I can somewhere find a human female who embodies all her virtues. Angeline and George seemed as devoted a mated pair as one could hope to find. As far as I could tell, they nev never quarreled, and the delight with which they greeted each other after even a short absence was obviously unfeigned. They were extremely affectionate with one another, but, alas, the many pages in my notebook which had been hopefully reserved for details, detailed comments on the sexual behavior and activities of wolves remained obstinately blank as far as George and Angeline were concerned. Distressing as it was, to my expectations, I discovered that physical lovemaking enters into the lives of a pair of mated wolves only during a period of two or three weeks early in the spring, usually in March. Virgin females, and they are all virginal until their second year, then mate. But unlike dogs, who have adopted many of the habits of their human owners, wolf bitches mate with only a single male and mate for life. Whereas the phrase, till death do us part, is one of the more amusing mockeries in the nuptial arrangements of a large proportion of the human race, with wolves it is a simple fact. Wolves are also strict monogamists, and although I do not necessarily consider this an admirable trait, it does make the reputation for unbridled promiscuity which we have bestowed on the wolf somewhat hypocritical. While it was not possible for me to know with exact certainty how long George and Angeline had been mated, I was later able to discover from Mike that they had been together for at least five years, or the equivalent of thirty years in terms of the relative longevity of wolves and men. Mike and the Eskimos recognized the wolves in their area as familiar individuals, and the Eskimos, but not Mike, held the wolves in such high regard that they would not have thought of killing them or doing them an injury. Thus, not only were George, Angeline, and other members of the family well known to the Eskimos, but the site of their den had been known for some forty or fifty years, during which time generations of wolves had raised families there. One factor concerning the organization of the family mystified me very much at first. During my early visit to the den, I had seen three adult wolves, and during the first few days of observing the den, I had again glimpsed the odd wolf out several times. He posed a major conundrum, for while I could accept the idea of a contented domestic group consisting of a mated male and female and a bevy of pups, I had not yet progressed far enough into the wolf world to be able to explain or to accept the apparent existence of an eternal triangle. Whoever the third wolf was, he was definitely a character. He was smaller than George, not so lithe and vigorous, and with a gray overcast to his otherwise white coat. He became Uncle Albert to me after the first time I saw him with the pups. The sixth morning of my vigil had dawned bright and sunny, and Angeline and the pups took advantage of the good weather. Hardly was the sun risen at 3 a.m., when they all left the den and adjourned to a nearby sandy knoll. Here the pups worked over their mother with an enthusiasm which would certainly have driven any human female into hysterics. 
They were hungry, but they were also full to the ears with hellery. Two of them did their best to chew off Angeline's tail, worrying it and fighting over it until I thought I could actually see her fur flying like spindrift, while the other two did what they could to remove her ears. Angeline stood it with noble stoicism for about an hour, and then, sadly disheveled, she attempted to protect herself by sitting on her tail and tucking her mauled head down between her legs. This was a fruitless effort. The pups went for her feet, one to each paw, and I was treated to the spectacle of the demon killer of the wilds trying desperately to cover her paws, her tail, and her head at one and the same instant. Eventually, she gave it up. Harassed beyond endurance, she leaped away from her brood and raced to the top of a high sand ridge behind the den. The four pups rolled cheerfully off in pursuit, but before they could reach her, she gave vent to a most peculiar cry. The whole question of wolf communications was to intrigue me more and more as time went on, but on this occasion I was still laboring under the delusion that complex communications among animals other than man did not exist. I could make nothing definite of Angeline's high-pitched and yearning whine-come-howl. I did, however, detect a plaintive quality in it, which made my sympathies go out to her. I was not alone. Within seconds of her cry de cour, and before the mob of pups could reach her, a savior appeared. It was the third wolf. He had been sleeping in a bed hollowed in the sand at the southern end of the esker where it dipped down to disappear beneath the waters of the bay. I had not known he was there until I saw his head come up. He jumped to his feet, shook himself, and trotted straight toward the den, intercepting the pups as they prepared to scale the last slope to reach their mother. I watched, fascinated, as he used his shoulder to bowl the leading pup over on its back and send it skidding down the lower slope toward the den. Having broken the charge, he then nipped another pup lightly on its fat behind. Then he shepherded the lot of them back to what I later came to recognize as the playground area. I hesitate to put human words into a wolf's mouth, but the effect of what followed was crystal clear. If it's a workout you kids want, he might have said, then I'm your wolf. And so he was. For the next hour, he played with the pups with as much energy as if he were still one himself. The games were varied, but many of them were quite recognizable. Tag was the standby, and Albert was always it. Leaping, rolling, and weaving amongst the pups, he never left the area of the nursery knoll, while at the same time leading the youngsters such a chase that they eventually gave up. Albert looked them over for a moment, and then, after a quick glance toward the crest where Angeline was now lying in a state of peaceful relaxation, he flung himself in among the tired pups, sprawled on his back, and invited mayhem. They were game. One by one they roused and went into battle. They were really roused this time, and no holds were barred. By them, at any rate. Some of them tried to choke the life out of Albert, although their small teeth, sharp as they were, could never have penetrated his heavy ruff. One of them, in an excess of infantile sadism, turned on its turned its back on him and pawed a shower of sand into his face. The others took to leaping as high into the air as their bowed little legs would propel them, coming down with a satisfying thump on Albert's vulnerable belly. 
In between jumps, they tried to chew the life out of whatever vulnerable parts came to tooth. I began to wonder how much he could stand. Evidently, he could stand a lot, for not until the pups were totally exhausted and had collapsed into complete somnolence did he get to his feet, careful not to step on the small, sprawled forms, and disengage himself. Even then, he did not return to the comfort of his own bed, which he had undoubtedly earned after a night of hard hunting, but settled himself instead on the edge of the nursery knoll, where he began wolf-napping, taking a quick look at the pups every few minutes to make sure they were still safely near at hand. His true relationship to the rest of the family was still uncertain, but as far as I was concerned, he had become, and would remain, good old Uncle Albert.'